With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. I'm on vacation, so this week we'll have one podcast, not two, but it's a good one. As part of my series of interviews with the candidates for U.S. Soccer President, I'm joined by Steve Gans, a Boston-based lawyer who has a long record in the game. We talk about Gans's platform, I press him on how he'll find a path to victory, and we talk about his opinions on the problems and potential solutions in American soccer. I know what's going on in this country, and that is that we are creating players who are technically better than they used to be, but they come out of it with no joy. And you cannot create great national team players if, if kids are losing and young people are losing their passion for this sport. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is U.S. Soccer presidential candidate Steve Gans. Steve, who was one of very few candidates to announce he was joining the race before the U.S. men's failure to qualify for the World Cup, is a partner in a Boston law firm who specializes in corporate sports and employment law. Over the past 25 years, he has been involved in a variety of soccer things, including World Cup 94's Boston venue and consulting work with MLS teams and teams in the English Premier League. He has worked in areas from youth soccer to the professional game, including administrative work and even a cup of coffee on the field with the MISL Baltimore Blast, whose star player Stan Stamankovich was my favorite villain as a young MISL fan. Steve, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here, Grant, and, and, and to actually uh, describe how much of a cup of coffee it was. I think my greatest uh, moment as a, quote, pro was stealing the ball from Stan Stamankovich in an inter-squad scrimmage and going the length of the field and scoring. So <laughs> that's about it. But there's the harmonic convergence. I'm okay. just glad to get Stan Stamankovich's name in a podcast for the first time, uh, a, a prominent figure in my youth. I want to ask you a question that I'm asking all of the official candidates for U.S. soccer president. Why do you think you are qualified to be president of U.S. soccer? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I was asked to do this by a number of people over two years ago, and it wasn't the timing wasn't right. But I felt for two reasons this was important. One was nobody was running. Uh, this was about to be the fourth election where nobody ran, and, and this is a democratic society, and it was important that someone had the courage and temerity to do it. That was one part of it. The second part is, you know, I, I watch this closely. I watch how U.S. soccer works closely, and I feel as if I have a really strong leadership uh, abilities and judgment abilities, and I just thought I could do a better job, and I think that now to this day. I first announced in my intention to run in May, uh, and I think as things have evolved, it's only validated the concerns out there that I was talking about, and I think I have the, the leadership abilities to do this. You are neither an insider in U.S. soccer or the leadership of MLS, nor a well-known former national team player like several other candidates in this election. How are you going to gain the traction you need with voters to win this election? Well, I think the voters are really smart, and the voters are looking for substance. This is not a race about celebrities, or it shouldn't be. 
Um, and I think people are really concerned, more concerned than they've ever been about substantive issues. And I think if you look, it's sort of been dizzying that we've gone from one challenger, one presumed challenger to an incumbent, so therefore two candidates to eight. I welcome all of them because this is a democratic society, but it's, it's, it's very uh, uh, <laughs> tiring, I think, for both the candidates and for, by the way, the voting delegates. They've got a lot to, to sift through. But if you look at it, it doesn't matter how many have been added. This is a very complex job. It requires someone with bona fide, continuous, and substantial soccer background, a real soccer person. And it's important to say that I'm a soccer guy my whole life who became an attorney at age 29, not an attorney who got interested in soccer. So it's, it takes a real soccer person, and it takes someone with uh, judgment, leadership, organizational skills, and business skills. And if you put those two essential qualities together, I, I fit the bill. If you had a big idea behind your presidency, what would you say it is? Well, the big idea uh, is I'm on record as saying that we have to fix the youth system. The first thing I'm going to do is is have a youth ta- – well, well, first we're going to have a summit of all constituencies within 60 days. But the first thing in terms of individual isolated task is to have a task force to f- fix all what ails you soccer. That's number one. I was asked that in an interview yesterday, and that's what I've said since since July, that we're going to fix you soccer because it's not just about you soccer. It's, it's, it's organic. Everything is organic in this sport and in this country. And, you, you know, it's, it's almost laughable to say you can only focus on the national team. If you're not healthy in the youth end, you're never going to produce uh, great national team players. As it is right now, I've lived the Development Academy for years, seven years now, as a former board member of a Development Academy club and a dad of two Development Academy players, one who went through it, one who we took out after U14, and um, I know what's going on in this country, and that is that we are creating players who are technically better than they used to be, but they come out of it with no joy, and you cannot create great national team players if, if kids are losing and young people are losing their passion for this sport. Messi went through the most intense academy in the world, arguably, and he came out with his joy. No one could say he doesn't play with joy. How is it that they preserve the joy and we aren't preserving the joy? So how do you address, try to solve issues that you're seeing in youth soccer? So there are so many. Um, So let's talk administratively. And, And ahead of one of the state associations, when I first went to Dallas in the summer on my listening tour, <clears throat> he basically he, he, he took a cocktail napkin, a Starbucks napkin, and he uh, drew a line, created a great metaphor. And that was that he drew a horizontal line. He put $4 million above it, representing the number of registered players, $4 million players, $4 million to U.S. soccer. Under that horizontal line, he drew three vertical lines, $3.1 million to USYS, 500000 to U.S. club soccer, 400000 to AYSO, all estimates, obviously. And what he said was, U.S. soccer does not look under that horizontal line. It looks at the top line, the aggregate number of players playing, 4 million, and wants to keep that going in the right direction and is not looking underneath. And what's going on underneath is zero-sum fighting between sanctioning organizations for the same players, leagues, and clubs. It is hurting this game terribly. It is confusing parents. It is upsetting kids. And it's all about business. And it's not about the, the nonprofit mission of U.S. soccer. We have a 75% attrition rate at, U, at age 13. That's unacceptable. And this infighting contributes to it. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to solve that. 
we're going to look down from the top top line and we're going to solve that infighting and get people on the same page and under the same tent and if they can't be if they're not in soccer for the right reasons then they're not going to get much attention and we're going to solve that that's one thing the other part is we're going to create good housekeeping standards for clubs i've lived clubs uh, in many many ways because it's not just the club that that my kids are with or I was on the board of. I, I represent clubs. I solve problems with clubs. I sometimes represent pro clubs and deals with youth clubs, and I think I get that as well. And there's a lot of great things about clubs, but there are a lot of standards that I think could be a lot better. Communication with parents, communication with kids, developing the kids again to play with joy. We're going to do that as well. In respect to the Development Academy itself, because so many people focus on it, I can tell you that there are good things about it, but there are utterly ridiculous things that come down from 30,000 feet above. They're edicts. They are attenuated. They do not uh, canvas or take into account the people in the trenches that are really living it. So as a parent, forget being a board member, as a parent of Development Academy player, I can tell you many each season it seemed that there was a new, more restrictive rule that came down from Chicago. and, and Such I as... Such as, such as, uh, I'll just think of one quickly, such as when a kid is subbed out, unlike the rest of club soccer, if he's subbed out in the 18th minute, he's done for the whole game, okay, in the development academy. And I get what they're saying. What they're saying is we want to make these kids pro-like in their mentality, even at U14, because that's how they do it in Europe. Uh, but that's, again, an example of something done at 30,000 feet. It's attenuated. It doesn't take into account what's really going on there. It, these principles that we take from Europe or Belgium with double pass, they're all fine, but they need to be modulated for America because America is different and where kids are, how they're tracked and all that kind of stuff. So something that in a boardroom in Chicago that says that'll make a kid more professional it's inimical. It's, it does the opposite. It, it takes the joy out of the game for a kid. When a kid is 14, and, and if he's not off to a fast start, a coach should be able to pull him out, tell him what he's doing wrong, and, and let him go back in. These kids are on pins and needles, and not in a healthy way, not in a competitive way. My son went through the whole academy, U18, and, and I can tell you that on an average academy club, if out of 22 kids, by the end of U18, U19, there are six that are happy, that's a lot. And that's a problem. It's a real problem. These kids have college coaches looking at them. The way it's set up each game, uh, you, you have at least half the team going into the game so nervous uh, and scared that they're not going to get in or they're not dressing or all that kind of stuff. That stuff needs to be addressed to how things work in America. So let's get back to that rule you asked me to talk about. Why is a kid taken out of the game, can't go back in? That doesn't happen in the rest of club soccer. Well, why can't a kid get a pointer and then, and then go back in? If the principle from Chicago is, okay, we have to make them more professional. If Johnny doesn't start the game fast, he needs to learn. If he's not in the game, he, he, may, he may be gone for the game. You can still do that without the rule. You can make it a coach's decision. Mm -hmm. And it makes all the difference in the world. And I can name you five more things like that that make – often that experience miserable. I have my own son who's thriving now in college uh, who needed to get distance from the development academy at the end. I can tell you kids I've coached, another kid who's like a son to me, took a year off after college, after nine years in the development, uh, uh, seven years in the development academy, decided not to play. I told him once you get distance, the joy will come back, and it did, and now he's mm -hmm. happily playing in college. There's something wrong. There's a disconnect. And so the point is, 
the Development Academy has some good things, but these decisions, and by the way, Grant, this notion that decisions are done from 30,000 feet and just imposed without canvassing the people in the trenches, the current SRA uh, a proposal for SRA being state referee administrators, mm-hmm. that affects you know youth, youth and adult state associations. These edicts just come down. They don't canvass the people in, 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 the, uh, in the field. And what you have to do is do it collegially and say, look, we've identified what we think is a problem. Let's talk about it. Let's see if we can work this out. And, 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 you know, and, that's, and I wasn't you know, in a, a, a candidate when this happened, but even when you see how the Development Academy developed and, and, and was planned, it was because the ODP, in U.S. soccer's opinion, wasn't doing a good enough job. And that could be true and it could not be true. But why was it suddenly just imposed? Why couldn't they have gone to the state associations and said, look, we're not happy with what you're doing. Let's talk about this. Let's try to work it out. And if we don't, by the way, we may do something else. That's the way I would govern U.S. soccer. Okay. There's currently a surplus in U.S. soccer, somewhere between $130 million and $150 million. How would you like to spend at least a good portion of that surplus, knowing that you have to keep some of it on in reserves. Sure. Um, so, so, so we have a, a stunningly inverse relationship. Largest surplus we've ever had, worst result we've ever had in the history of, of U.S. soccer. So it's very clear hoarding that money doesn't really help. Um, and I think what we do with, with a lot of that money, and obviously, right, you have to be fiscally responsible so you don't take every last dollar of it, but it goes back. It goes back to address pay-to-play. It goes back to address diversity. It goes back to the uh, member organizations for their own prog- programmatic reasons to help them and, and to uh, you know, prosecute their mission. It goes back for field development and, and field uh, small fields and other fields you know, to try the inner city and rural small field concept to fix fields and to build fields. And so I think it largely goes back to the constituency. Can you address pay-to-play without having billions of dollars? Well, when you say address pay-to-play, I think you can ameliorate it somewhat. Um, I, I think anyone who says you're just going to eliminate it tomorrow is, is not talking honestly. But it needs – it's out of control. It, it's out of control. There are some clubs charging $3,700 a year plus tournament fee. It's about $4,000 a year, and that's before all the travel. Th- this is just out of control at this point. And I think clubs – which do great things, they have to be more responsible too. They cannot sell the dream to every U11 parent that the kid's getting a scholarship. These are standards that I want to impose, standards of, of uh, that good housekeeping standards that clubs should inter- – and I've lived it, so I think I can say it, again, not autocratically, but in committee, that the, the clubs should articulate uh, – uh, or will be articulated rules, and they will communicate better with, with families and kids, and they will also treat the kids better and the families, and there'll be a good housekeeping standard that parents can look to about how a club is rated. Before we get into some more specific issues inside U.S. soccer, I think one purpose of this podcast is to give listeners a, a better idea of who you are, your background. Sure. And I mentioned in my introduction that uh, you've done consulting work with MLS teams and English Premier League teams. Could you go into a little detail on what that is involved? Sure, I, I can. So, um, you know, ho- ho- what I'm saying and what I, what I think is a sincere statement is I've done everything in this game other than be a professional referee, meaning I've touched on every area. I have experience in every area. Obviously, my my pro playing experience was, was nothing compared to the national team players, but I, I understand that perspective and I've experienced it and I've 
had four broken legs and 13 operations. So I've certainly experienced sort of the, the, the travails of a player. So I've lived it as a player. I've represented players. I've lived it as a parent, a youth coach, a board member, um, you know, an advisor, both to clubs and to parents and, and to players. Uh, as, as I helped turn around the Boston World Cup effort when it was ranked 29th and, and last of all 29 cities, uh, not as a city, but as, as the quality of its bid effort in 1990. And it took three years to turn it around. Pleased to say that Boston became one of nine World Cup sites. Um, my hometown did that for my hometown. So very, very, very proud of that. Um, honestly, what, what happened in terms of what I do in the Premier League is it kind of happened spontaneously. Uh, I, I got a call from a senior Premier League uh, executive uh, who said that he heard from someone that I know, I'm the American who understands soccer at all levels. It's not my words, his <laughs> words, better, better than anyone or as well as anyone. Yeah. And I said, not flippantly, I, this is 2006, mind you, and I said, uh, not flippantly, I bet I know why you're calling, you're wondering why 18 million people play soccer in America and nobody pays to watch. Because at that time, MLS wasn't doing very well. And he said, that's exactly what we're wondering because we look at Asia and we look at the U.S. as unbelievable markets, and we 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 don't under, we can't understand U.S. So it started with the first meeting, um, suitably impressed, and from there I, they they were suitably impressed, and from there it started this consulting business. It was never a full time thing. I was running companies at that time and acting as in house counsel. It was a side consulting business, which it still remains, although I do a lot of legal stuff through my law firm now, um, and it, it has involved consulting on everything from understanding the American market, branding, revenue opportunities, front office management, even even in certain uh, limited Premier League clubs, player acquisition strategies. So, huh. so I've, I've done everything for, for there as well. In other words, touched on every area. Okay. Not to overstate it. And consulting work with MLS teams too? Well, yes, uh, in, in the sense at the beginning of, of – of, uh, uh, MLS, uh, I gave the, you know, I was with the Baltimore Blast, and I humbly, humbly but proudly say is one of the most successful front offices, the original Boston, Baltimore Blast. You'll argue the Kansas City Comets were, but, uh, and I know they, they did great too, but we, we, we did experience, a lot of MISL teams did that in the early to mid-80s, and yeah. we had an exceptional front office model and, I, uh, and a community relations model, and I shared that at the beginning of the New England Revolution with the general manager there and the senior Management. So I, I did a lot of, you know, I, most of it was pro bono, um, but but I, I think I played a big role in them getting off uh, to a good start in terms of, uh, from a business perspective, because one of the interesting things about the New England Revolution, 1996 to 1998, it might have been one of the first examples of an American pro soccer team that did not do well on the field at all, and yet it finished first or second in attendance every year. Historically, for teams to do well in this country in the old NESL and the MISL, you had to catch the community's fancy with, the, with doing well on the field. And the question was whether you could sink roots down while you did that and you could keep the community's fancy or whether it would be ephemeral. And the revolution, I think, was one of the first examples that, that I think behind the LA Galaxy, and again, I'm dating myself, but, but did that even though it had three horrific years on the field. Uh, I also was presumptively, one other example, retained to uh, pick uh, the next... Uh, coach and technical director for an MLS club. Can you name which one? Well, that, we only have 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting story. So it, it, it was, again, in the late 2000s, it was, uh, it was Toronto FC. Okay. By, uh, by, by Tom Anselmi, who was the president of MLSE. But 
uh, right when I was about to begin it, ironically, another group came in and uh, involved Jurgen Klinsmann before he was um, a national team coach. And the executive at MLS, he decided, he had a lot of pressure on him, he decided he'd take a bigger name to do it. And uh, so in the end, Klinsman uh, scooped it, and he was the one who picked Aaron Winter to be the Toronto coach. Not one of the great success stories in the history of MLS, Aaron Winter. Obviously, Toronto doing a bit better these days. <laughs> That's correct. And I wasn't bitter <laughs> about losing that job, but, but, but trust me, I, I, I followed how it went closely <laughs> after that because I realized I could have done, a, I think, a better job. <laughs> With um, all due respect. This week, you sent a formal letter to U.S. Soccer on Tuesday calling for an independent professional to manage the election instead of U.S. Soccer over the next two months. You wrote, quote, in light of the deficient handling of the election process to date, there is no reason to have faith that U.S. Soccer leadership will manage this process appropriately in the months ahead, end quote. Those are pretty strong words, Steve. Why did you send this letter? Well, just to clarify, for the record, it's not my letter. It, it, those are not my words. There's a partner of mine named Rob Birchie, mm -hmm. who's a First Amendment and uh, otherwise an un unbelievable lawyer who, who's an expert in so many areas. Uh, it was Rob who sent it. But Representing your campaign. Correct. Yeah. No, no, no question. I just want to say they weren't, they weren't my words, yeah. literally. And what I want to say about that is what we're saying is, is something important. We're not casting aspersions. What we're saying is something's wrong here with the process that U.S. soccer, with due respect, was not ready for this election. I have seasoned campaign people, I'm very fortunate, uh, who are very much into this and highly experienced, and this is what they do. And they say they've never seen anything like it, that, that a, 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 an election cannot be something where rules are created on the fly and in response to external stimuli. You have to anticipate what might happen. For instance, if it's, it's very much reasonably foreseeable that someone may withdraw their candidacy. Well, you need to know how to react to that. And yet they just changed the rule relating to that last Saturday. And so the, what we're saying is that it's not an election they've faced or, or prepared for in the past. And that so that everything is done properly, so that everyone can have faith that this works right, so that they can get help and they should admit it, that for the last 60 days there should be independent outside management. It's not casting aspersions. It's saying empirically, look what's happened here. This just shouldn't and ought not to happen in elections, and you, and you need help. Please admit it and, and do it for the sake of, of optics and fairness and, and, and your own needs. And part of U.S. Soccer's response when I wrote this story for Sports Illustrated this week was uh, we actually are uh, going to have an independent group monitor the election itself on February 10th. Now, you would prefer to have somebody independent handling things for the next two months, including the election, correct? I think so. And if you look at the feedback from other candidates and from the public and from the voters, I think overwhelmingly, to the extent people utter an opinion, I think they want that too, because just to have them there for that three-day weekend really doesn't do it. it. You want to make sure, again, that there won't be ad hoc rules created on the fly here, that there's professional management. And look, I'm not casting aspersions. This is an unprecedented election. It's unprecedented. And so I think professionals should come in, and, and so do many others, should come in just to make sure this is done correctly. 
Recently, ESPN's Jeff Carlisle reported that members of the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors are trying to restructure the federation leadership to provide a new powerful general manager position, a very soccer-intensive position. What's your take on that idea and the timing of this move by the board so close to the election? So, you know, Jeff Jeff reported both the general manager notion and that the, the president's job is going to be, quote, restructured. I, I have felt that um, there needs to be a clarification of what the president's role is because – and I don't want to get into the weeds here and bore everyone about corporate corporate governance stuff. But but basically, this is, this is a job – and I've said this since May – that – um, because I have this this background and uh, on boards and leading companies and that sort of thing, that is an officer in title, president, but in function, it's chairman of the board of directors already. If you look at the existing bylaw 4.2, all of the responsibilities of, of the president really are descriptive of chairman of the board of directors. How that evolved, I don't know, but that's not what it says. You know, that's not what it says it should be. And so and so I've been saying for a while because I, th- I think there are candidates who have different views than me uh, about it. And, but I've pointed out that it's not it's even though it's technically president. So that says officer. It's not cited in Chicago. Right. That's where an officer would be. It's not paid. It's a volunteer job. And it's very important that in nonprofits, officers can get paid. But in the overwhelming number of cases, directors ought not to be paid. Most attorney generals issue position papers on that. So this is a volunteer job. It's not in Chicago, cited there every day. And here's the weird corporate in the weeds thing. If it really were the president's job, in corporate parlance, a corporate governance parlance, a president is under a CEO. CEO is really the head of the company and and the office as an officer. And so that would make this job under Dan Flynn. So by inference and by experience, even though it has that title, it's really chairman of the board of directors already. So I think it's good that they clarify it. Um, That said, uh, it is a little odd, again, that this might be done before the election because, again, we're we're in an election. And I think if it is done, it, it needs to be done like anything else with transparency. When we talk about this situation of, of having a maybe a, a, in practice over the last 12 years with Sunil Gulati, he clearly in how he approached the presidency did not go by the letter of the bylaw in U.S. soccer. He was a very, very strong president who had his hand in just about everything. So my sense is, is that Gulati has de facto changed the role of the presidency. It doesn't mean that subsequent presidents have to do that or not. It sounds to me here like you are saying that you actually prefer the more limited role of the president? Well, I, I, I don't say I prefer the more limited role. What I'm saying is that it, it seems to me that it's already been in the, a de facto sense, uh, supposed to be, mm-hmm. uh, a chairman of the board of directors. And in a literal sense, a, a de jure sense, by the bylaw, it is clearly supposed to be like chairman of the board of directors if you look at the role. Now, where that line blurs in terms of what's inappropriate for the president to step over that line, not 100% clear. But what I, I give an example. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, picking the next men's national team coach. Would it be appropriate for the chairman of the board to just go out there and, and run a process all by himself or herself and pick the next person? No, I don't think so. 
Um, but but it certainly is appropriate for the chairman of the board and the board to sign off on a monumental decision like that, for sure. That's what that's what boards of directors do. They mm-hmm. govern the officers. They oversee the officers. They set policy and they approve major decisions and they approve major initiatives and they come up with major initiatives, but they're not the one doing the nuts and bolts every single day. Without having you commit to anyone in particular, what are some names you think should be in consideration for the U.S. men's national team coach? Well, I, I do have some names in my head, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to share them and not to be coy. This is an example of the collegial way I am. And, and this is a very important thing because if you look at the the presumed technical strength of former national team players, it, they would presume, it would be presumed that they have better technical experience than me. And so I want to make clear as to that, that I would never be autocratic, that I would never uh, substitute my judgment. Uh, picking the next men's national team coach or any national team coach is going to be done with huge committee input and, and, and some national team players that I would ideally you know, want to have in there uh, to, to help pick that person. And so, yes, I have some ideas. That Toronto thing that I was chosen for, presumptively, I have a 40-point plan that I developed. That would have been, what, 2009, I guess, 2010, that I would go back to in terms at least suggest and say these are the criteria we look at. But I would never say these are the only criteria. I would say what do you think of these criteria? Mm -hmm. I will say this. I have a very studied experience because I've been in this game since I'm a 14-year-old kid writing to Phil Woosnam, the NHL commissioner, about why the Boston Minutemen were failing. Um, and, I, I, <laughs> I, and it does go back, and he's sending an executive <laughs> from New York to meet me. How about that? But, but um, I do have a very strong opinion about the profile. In yeah. other words, let's distill it down. I know what the strengths, presumptive strengths and weaknesses of a choice of an American born and bred coach manager is. And I know what the presumptive strengths and weaknesses of an international coach is. They're inverse, right? The American one is, well, he hasn't led a team to the final of the World Cup. He's not, you know, not led major teams internationally. The plus is he gets the American heart. He gets artificial turf. He gets travel. He gets the American spirit. All these kinds of things which are stunning to people coming from outside the country. And, of course, the inverse, the the. The, the presumptive plus of an international coach is the pedigree and the experience bringing a, a <clears throat> national team to near World Cup championship, if not championship. And the presumptive negative might be, how's the adjustment going to be to this country and are you going to live with it? I'm old enough to remember that Adidas and U.S. soccer brought in Detmar Kramer from Bayern Munich in the 70s to be national team coach, and he left very quickly because he hated it here and he couldn't adjust. Mm. Okay, that was a huge thing. It was These are probably was 19, I don't know, 1976 or something like that. You can look it up. But they yeah. brought him in. Adidas brought him in. He was a U.S. national team technical director and coach, manager, and he left. It, you know, it, it, you need to do a litmus test to make sure if someone coming from outside the country will understand that soccer in this country works a little differently. And can you adjust and can you channel that? I want to talk a little bit about women's soccer. Sure. And women in soccer leadership. Uh, in the Federation. It's pretty clear to anyone who takes a look at it, there aren't enough women involved in the leadership of the U.S. Soccer Federation. As president, what would you do to increase the representation of women in leadership positions in U.S. soccer? So if you look at my platform, and I have a 21-point platform, and uh, on the one hand, I'll say you can zip through it. On the other hand, I don't want to make anyone go through a 21-point platform because that by itself might be boring. But if the the biggest, at least in words, the biggest single item in there, and that doesn't mean it's you know 
more significant per se than anything else, but the, 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 I've addressed the most points within the, the women's issues, uh, the women's issue. And so I, am, I recognize that. And the first thing we're going to do is, is equalize the working conditions of the women's national team players because I met with the Athletes Council in Orlando. And, you know, you never know when you go into a room what you're going to end up talking about. But here's where we found real common ground. It's about artificial turf, if mm-hmm. you can believe it. That was the biggest part of the 45-minute meeting, and I'd say 15 minutes of it were about art, was about artificial mm-hmm. turf. I hate artificial turf. You know, can't play into space. When I played on it, more injuries. Um, my older son at U15 Development Academy played 31 out of 32 games on artificial turf one year, and at 15 years old wound up with an L5-S1 bulging disc, almost had to have major back surgery. And that, to me, happened because of the emphasis in the Northeast on, on artificial turf. Well, why did it become such an issue? Because that week, the issue had come out that the women had just signed their agreement, and there was not finite language, but aspirational language about ensuring that the women don't play that much on artificial turf, but already they've been scheduled for four or five games. And they were outraged, and properly so. And, you know, in my, in, in my administration, the women will only play an artificial turf as much as the men, never more. Which Hope- isn't very often. <laughs> and hopefully zero. I think <laughs> yeah. the men have only done it once. Mm. And hopefully zero, actually. that that Because I, 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 ideally, I hate artificial turf. And so that's part of it. So the working conditions right away. But you, you, you talk about something much deeper. There aren't enough DOCs. There aren't enough women in the game in administration. I've talked to Mary Harvey. I happen to meet her right outside the room there. I had heard about it for years and years from people I tr- you know, trust a lot, like Ridge Mahoney. It, it, she was living in Boston in the early 90s. I remember him talking about her. And, and the reality is that those kind of people that advocate for women and roles in administration as executives, as DOCs and clubs, uh, of youth clubs, they're going to have a, a big sway in this because we're going to equalize it. It's a very big part of this game. I represent the breakers. I see the challenges of NWSL. And, you know, I, I think U.S. soccer should commit more to it. Yeah, Boston specifically Rangers. I was going to ask you about NWSO. Yeah. What do you think U.S. soccer can be doing more for the NWSO? I, th- I think they're, again, without seeing the, the, the budget from U.S. soccer, I think presumptively, uh, uh, you know, I'd want to commit more financially to it and, and more support of it because I, I know how most of these clubs struggle. Again, I'm, you know, I'm legal counsel for Boston Breakers, at least as to some aspects there. And those owners are very dedicated and been dedicated for a very long time. And so U.S. soccer should should commit to that. And I would say presumptively more than it is now. One hot button topic in the campaign is promotion and relegation in U.S. soccer. What's your stance? I was on BBC yesterday and they asked me to answer it in lightning round. And I said, I can't do it in lightning (laughs) round. So so here's the answer. Um, I believe in promotion relegation in principle. It's it's what makes the game go round. We all, the last week of the season, my league is the Premier League more than La Liga, but whatever your league is, or Serie A, uh, we all watch that last Sunday not to see who's going to win the championship, right? We look to see who's going to stay up and go down. It's exciting. It's, it, it's, it's passionate. I also say to credit of the promotion relegation advocates, they made this really important point after the U.S. lost in October. When you play every week, to survive as opposed to knowing you're going to be in the top division. You develop more of a cutting edge, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. So I think promotion relegation is great in principle. That said, I'm not a soundbite guy, and I don't say yes and no. 
you, that's not where the story ends. You have to consider it within the context of American sports, sports economics. And you also have to consider it within the sociology of America. You know, I go back to, to again, the, the Baltimore Blast Kansas City Comets day, uh, Kansas City Comets days, when the NASL was failing, and I was with the Blast from 82 to 84, and we were at our peak, and the NASL was done by 85. And I go back and remember the wasteland from 1985 to 1996 where we didn't have a Division I league. No, nowhere for any great play, American player to play. Nowhere for any great, meaning devoted American fan to, to be passionate. And I don't ever want to go back to those days. So we cannot ignore the investment that has gone into this game. We cannot just wholesale implement it. I think if leagues want to do it on their own at this point, that's very possible. I represent a European club that's interested in maybe doing something here someday, and they like the concept of promotion relegation, but they realize it's going to take a while. And, and you know, I think it is a great thing in principle. And the last thing I'll say about it is my first Premier League game ever was Charlton Athletic, home against Norwich. 27,000 fans come out of the neighborhoods, and they go into the valley. And just a year later, Charlton got relegated. But you know what? The next year, still 25 of those 20,000 27,000 people marched into the valley. And it's because it's tribal and it's generational. That's how sport is there. That's how football is there. It's not yet like that here. And so, you again, it's another example of modulating for the unique American experience. You mentioned earlier we talked about U.S. soccer president being an unpaid position. I just want to be clear here. Do you think it should be a paid position or remain an unpaid position? Well, well again, because based on my experience of what the bylaws say of what it is, it, it, there's a fiction there. In other words, they, it's called op, president officer, but really functions like chairman of the board of directors. If that's correct, if it's really chairman of the board of directors, again, my, attorney general in my state, Massachusetts, says directors should not be paid uh, because they're volunteering to help a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit mission, so they should not profit from it. So my opinion is that if that's the case, then it should not be paid. And currently it is an unpaid position. How are you providing the, the funding for this campaign, which requires you to travel around? Right. How will you get by during your presidency if it's an unpaid position? Right. So um, good question. Uh, you know, and it, it is a challenge because there are <clears throat> apparently two or three of the candidates and you know, power to them, but they're, they're being individually funded and they're on planes every day. I can't do that. Can't afford to do that. So um, uh, and plus, I, I work. Everyone else is taking a leave of absence from their jobs. And, and I, for all intents and purposes, maybe I have. I mean, my, my managing partner is probably you know, pretty angry, but he's, but he's patient. Um, but, you know, I still have to do client work and that sort of thing. So I'm funding it to the extent it needs funding on my own somewhat um, and, and basically some, some close uh, – uh, uh, a few close – Friends and believers have contributed a little bit of money, but I'm not raising, uh, I'm not using the type of money I think that some other people are because they're on planes every day and I can't do that. You know, I've gone to Jacksonville, Orlando, Dallas, uh, here on the Amtrak today, um, those sorts of things. But I'm not on a plane every day, so I'm, I'm. It's very modestly funded. And I should also be. And very also, I will also say, I, I am very fortunate. Yeah. Where I have some very significant people running this campaign who are who are who run senatorial campaigns and stuff like that and messaging congressional ca campaigns on Massachusetts and for whatever reason and they're not even soccer people or one actually one is from out of state but but the main guy he just he's doing it he's volunteering he I should also be clear in saying there are no rules against 
being funded during the campaign process and for your campaign travel. That happens pretty regularly in soccer elections, in the FIFA presidential election. UEFA supported all of Johnny Infantino's travels around the world. Um, so that's not unusual, but not I think unusual, it is, but I think it should, it's important should. To, to say like, you know, I think as a candidate that you are being funded. And, and I would also ask like the people, the few people you said who are supporting you right now, they're not asking for anything in return in, in terms of platform, stuff like that. No, no. In fact, um, so I agree with you. I, I don't think it's illegal at all, but I think it should be disclosed. I right. just gave full disclosure, and, and I think it should be disclosed, you know, who might be funding other people. Um, no, absolutely not. It's a, it's a funny story, and I know I don't want to run out of time, but, but I, you know, I'm a son of an immigrant, and I was told never take anything from anyone. Just, you know, you've got to make it on your own. My dad came here from Germany, and, I, and I'm, as an attorney and advisor to people, I'm used to solving people's problems and helping them. So I don't want to take anything from anyone. And so I didn't want to raise a dime. And this, this campaign advisor who's volunteering so much of his time, he finally said to me, this is going to be the difference between winning and losing. If you don't do this, if you don't raise a little money, um, then I'm leaving. So because mm. he, he said you have to be able to travel and, and this kind of thing. So we've raised a very, very modest amount. The other thing he said is, None of these people, you think it's a quid pro quo. It's not a quid pro quo. These are people that, that believe in you and love soccer and and want to be part of it. That If there's anything that's in it for him, it's just being a little bit part of it, okay? And and he's given me his part of it in the sense of the experience of it, of the campaign. And he's given me examples of, you know, his, his own campaigns doing that. And so I've done a litmus test with everyone else. In fact, I did a... One person, close friend of mine, wrote me a check, and and I opened up the, the envelope, and he said, "Steve, you are the worst fundraiser in the history of fundraising, because you won't ask any of your friends. You know, I believe in you. No strings. You know, put the, put this in the bank. I mean, th- we're talking a very modest amount. Can but, you name your top two or three funders? Uh, I I will get back to you on that. I don't know if they as individuals." want to every everything has been um segregated and that sort of thing okay uh, but i i can i can consult and get back to you on that okay i, I and that's not that's not for me that's not about uh, um, lack of transparency that's about whether they feel they signed up for that okay, okay? And, and keep because, in mind because, for because remember we've got we've got other people that that have been given apparently an unlimited checkbook and so i think it is kind of a little unfair to a to a friend that's that's you know knocked on my door and, and given me something um, to, to dis- disclose that without me telling them. How about this? There's still quite a bit more of the campaign left. Yeah. With each of the candidates, I will contact each of the candidates once we know exactly who those official candidates are. And as right. we record this, we should find out any minute, I hope. Sure, sure. And just each one of those candidates, I will get top funders and see, or at least ask them, I think that's could you name your, your top three Funders. No, and I, I'm all for that. I just wa- I just wanted to preserve the whatever you want to call it the the um, privacy of right. a friend who I don't want to hear. He calls me and says, "I didn't tell you. I didn't sign up for that. That you're right. releasing my name on a podcast." But I agree. I think that's a question you should ask. And okay. I will certainly first thing I do when I get home is go back and and t- and talk to them. Okay, great. Just a couple more questions here. Appreciate this much time sure. that you've taken. You wanted to come back to Development Academy. What in particular? Well, the only thing I wanted to say is because I, I went into this whole thing about but, but why the 
the pro-substitution rule is inimical to development, all that kind of stuff. It's an example of 30,000 feet decision-making. And But I know the mindset. The mindset is we got to get them ready to be pros, right? So when the Development Academy, my son played, you had to play a 4-5-1 or a 4-3-3 because the national team was playing that. Now, that makes sense in principle. There's rationality to that. Uh, what one might argue, kids got to learn other stuff too. But again, that's that's a defensible position for sure. So I don't, I don't really argue with that. But these other things, they're all geared toward developing the kid for a pro setting. Kids, I'll, I'll stick this one for a minute. Kids know that you get substituted in the pro game, you're out, okay? But these kids are, are developing, and there's real value in a coach being able to put his arm around a kid's shoulder and say, look, you're overlapping too much out of the back. I get your left back for a reason, and you're doing too many recovery runs. Don't do that unless you've got this much space, whatever it is, and put him back in there. Again, why is it a hard and fast rule that he has to be out of the game, you know, because he hasn't started quickly? The coach can decide that. He can say, Johnny, I told you you got your heads in the game. It's not. I'm taking on the 18th minute. You're not going back in. So why should it be hard and fast? So concomitant with that, if, if the mindset and the ethos is we've got to make these kids more professional, here, here's an example where they're totally tone deaf. What's, what's, what's a, what makes you more of a professional player? It's playing in front of a crowd and dealing with that pressure, okay? So one of the things I want to say, and it's in my platform with, about the Development Academy, is I'm going to look seriously at liberalizing the high school rules. Hmm. The U.S. soccer is empirically correct in a general sense when it says that three months of high school soccer, the training competition uh, that you get is, and competition that you get is empirically in most cases inferior to the Development Academy. That's asked and answered. But there's so much that high school brings in terms of helping a kid keep the joy. And by the way, in this one important element, learning to play in front of a crowd, I never really mastered it. If I knew I was on TV or something like that, I thought too much. I'll freely admit it. That's why I, I, I admire my older son and my younger son because they, 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 black, you know, they blot that stuff out. Learning to play under pressure in front of a crowd is a big part of it. And, and U.S. soccer doesn't even think about that. It just says, well, the kids, they're not training well enough in high school. You know, you know what the typical development academy game is, especially in the fall because no college coaches are there? It's, it's like a test tube. It's antiseptic. It's 40 white-knuckled parents holding on to the fence or holding on to their chairs, not sharing because they're simmering because every touch matters to their kid's future. It's one USSF assessor. It's a hollow stadium or field where you hear echoes. It's technically really well played, but it's generally not played with flair or passion. And something's miss missing. And everything is like, a, like a, a test tube. And my older son, actually, when he originally committed to another school, and the school, to its credit, said, you know, you're losing the joy in the academy. You can play your high school. He got his joy back by playing for a much lower standard, but playing in front of a 1,000 people under the lights and, and playing with his high school friends and having that experience. And so U.S. soccer says not good enough because they're not, th those three months is going to kill him. Well, you know what? My son played his high school year not in the de development academy. He played three months for his high school, and he just killed it as a mm. freshman and was one of the top rated one of the top New England, New England freshman soccer players of the year, and he got it back by gaining some distance. So the point is, that's another example of the attenuated decisions that when you sit in a boardroom and you don't really look at the trenches. I've lived this stuff. We have to consult the people who've lived this stuff, the, the, the people in the trenches. We're not going to make decisions just from 30,000 feet above. To wrap up here, yeah. and I enjoyed this conversation. Me too. 
If you had a final thing to say to the voters and U.S. soccer fans, what would it be? Great question. Uh, what I what I hope that people are looking for in this job is someone that that can do a, a confluence of things because it's a big job. It's not just the sexy thing about being in front of a camera or I don't even know if this is sexy, but picking the next men's national team coach. It's 98% of it is really important stuff that goes on, especially if it's like chairman of the board of directors. It is it needs someone who has conflict resolution skills, who has leadership organizational skills, who's led a business, not just advised people, but led a business, who has consensus building skills, conflict resolution skills, uh, all negotiation skills. That is a definite part of this job. And yet it can't be just that person. It's got to be someone who's steeped in soccer, who has had continuous and diversified soccer background that understands the youth scheme from different perspectives, from the from the parent perspective, from the coach perspective, from the kid perspective, and and all the way up to the pros and everywhere in between. And even, you know, and the adult amateur as well. I mean, after my little brief career I played in New England over the Hill League, it's, it's having all of those perspectives. And what I hope is that people get what the job really is. It's a confluential job and, and that they focus in on which few or even single candidate has that confluence of qualities. Steve Gans, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Grant. I want to add a bit at the end of this podcast. As you heard, I asked Gans at one point, who were the biggest financial donors to his campaign? I am in the process of asking all the official candidates if their campaigns are being funded by donors, which is very much within the rules. And if yes, who are their three biggest financial donors? Gans got back to me and here is his response. Quote, the common bond between the three people is that they are each friends of mine and soccer dads. One son I coached and is now playing college soccer. One son played college soccer and is trying to continue his playing career. And one son played club soccer with my older son and is now in college but no longer playing soccer. Most importantly, there is no conflict of interest as none of the three are in the game and have no interest before U.S. soccer. They are simply friends who believe in me and who want U.S. soccer to do better at all levels. The names of the first two are Joe Larkin and Chris Lemley. The third friend opted to remain anonymous as he says that his company's policy does not allow him to go public on such matters. As a friend, I have to respect that desire for privacy, but I again assure you that he is merely a soccer dad who thinks U.S. soccer can do better and he is not involved in the business of soccer and has no business before U.S. soccer. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Steve Gans as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon with a free seven-day trial now. Recent guests include Patrick Vieira, Juan Carlos Osorio, Roberta Martinez, Hercules Gomez, Arlo White, and Gwendolyn Oxenham. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. 
you get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.